Good morning. Good afternoon. I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. Thank you for coming today. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father God, how grateful we are to be at a conference like this, and we're thankful, Lord, for the way you have been ministering to our hearts and souls. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we have in Christ, the life that we, and the hope that we have in him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to talk about dating and marriage and uh, this very important subject, and pray, Lord, that this would be something that you would use to strengthen your church, that your name would receive more glory. Teach us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to the breakup session on dating. I mean, sorry, did I say breakup? Um, welcome to the breakout session on dating, my name is Brian Biedebach. Uh, I am the Dean of Students at the Master Seminary. I am an Associate Professor of Pastoral Ministry. I also teach a fellowship group. I help to shepherd a fellowship group here at Grace Community Church called Steadfast. Just to give you an idea of a demographic of our group, although we're open to all ages, uh, we have an engagement at least once a month, and uh, we had 16 babies born to our group last year. 16, we're keeping track, so uh, it's church growth the old-fashioned way, and we're just, um, we're just grateful to be a part of this, and we have lots of young couples, lots of singles in our group, and uh, I'm going to take us through a, a presentation on really how to minister to those in the church with this, uh, with this issue, who have questions about this issue, and I'm hoping to leave some time at the end for any questions you have, so... Um, we will try to move a little bit rapidly, but we'll, we'll save some time at the end for some questions. Uh, so I want to first talk about definitions of marriage because there are two competing definitions in our society. There's the biblical definition that the church uh, has taught for centuries, and there is uh, a redefinition of marriage which society keeps on changing and watering down until it's absolutely nothing about nothing. Um, so the biblical definition of marriage, what I'm going to go for for this presentation, is that it is a God-sanctioned union which joins one man and one woman in an exclusive relationship as delineated in Scripture. And if you want to learn more about that definition, I took that definition from the elder's statement, or our distinctive, on marriage and sexuality, which is on the Grace Church website. So if you go to gracechurch.org and you look at distinctives and you look at marriage and sexuality, there's quite a lengthy section on this, and this is just a synopsis of what our position is on the definition of marriage. Uh, society has redefined marriage, and uh, I, I'm going to go with Webster's Dictionary's latest definition of marriage, and that is this. The state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. Now, it looks like it, it's a fairly straightforward uh, definition, and yet really it's lacking in so many areas. The implications of the redefinition of this marriage, notice that the definition has no limitations on the number of persons, no limitations on the gender of persons, no limitations on the length of the relationship, no limitations on the behavior prior to the relationship. Let's read the definition again. It's the state of being united as spouses, no limitation on number there, uh, in consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. No length, uh, no gender. It's just, it's basically saying that marriage is any agreement that people agree to for however long or however short it may be. Um, and so what does that mean for society? What does it look like in society? You don't have to look very far to find really bad examples of the, what, how this impacts our society. In fact, uh, while I was preparing for this presentation, I was using Microsoft PowerPoint, and they have a number of templates that you can use. And I was looking for, well, you know, ones that uh, could maybe go with marriage. And as it turns out, they have a seven-slide template uh, for wedding receptions. So I thought maybe I could use that template for the background. You know, it's got to have wedding stuff and stuff like that. So I'm, I actually wasn't able to use that, and you'll see why in a moment. I've imported all seven slides into my presentation, the easiest part, just to give you a picture of what happens when the world defines what a wedding is. So this is, this is the template 
that people are supposed to use to put together to help the wedding reception go well and introduce you to the couple. So introducing the persons. This is the first slide. Uh, I'm sorry if this is offensive, and I, I really I, I think it is offensive uh, to me, and I hesitated to use it, but I, I just think we need to really realize what society is trying to promote here. Um, how we met, and so you, you put your own picture in there and a little bit of our story and so forth, and then our first date, okay, and then, you know, we've got different pictures of dating and whatever, and then uh, moving in together. This is the next uh, part of our, our slideshow of our life story, and and then, uh, you know, us living together, and then and then you, you put the next one, the proposal. So notice the order of things. I mean, you know, Okay, so then we decide to get married, and, and then we have pictures of us as an engaged couple, and then uh, thank you. Thank you, and it says, for joining our celebration. This is hard. Celebration of what? So uh, it's just a prepackaged template, and notice how acceptable to make it and how ambiguous it is. So when we think about society's definition of marriage, how does that impact the church? How does that impact single Christians in the church? The redefinition and the shifting sands of what marriage looked like, even in the past 70 years, what it used to be defined as and what it is now. Well, there are a couple of impacts that I'll mention. One of them is it prolongs singleness. We're seeing that because of the redefinition of marriage and society's low view of marriage, singleness, people are getting married later And that also proliferates immorality, and I think those two are related. In the first century, the average age of marriage for women was between 12 and 14 years old, for men uh, between 14 and early 20s. And there are several sources you can turn to that. uh, Nelson's uh, Bible, uh, Illustrated Bible Manners and Customs can can validate that. But uh, what you find is in the 1950s here in America, the average age for women is 21. The average age for men is 23. Um, and that's part of a, we're in a different culture, but it's also, um, it's, even since the 1950s, according to the U.S. Census Bureau uh, in America, the current average age for marriage of women is 28 and men is 30. And I would argue that in California it's probably later than that, but we have some states in the middle that bring us back to uh, early marriage. So... Um, when we think about that and we think about the fact that we have uh, prolonged singleness and there's more temptation and we live in a society that actually prizes sexual promiscuity and promotes it as normal and encourages it. So what happens is when you have somebody come to you for premarital counseling, by the time they get to you, many of the singles are already either living together or Uh, they're following really kind of a code which they think they've justified in their minds, which basically says we can do anything promiscuous as long as we don't have sexual intercourse. Uh, And so that's kind of you're having people come to you and their relationship has been riddled with worldly influence and it's setting them up for a difficult marriage. So when we talk about God's design for marriage and we talk about this is one of the things that we need to be doing in churches to try and help uh, young people to see what marriage is like, that we, we cannot allow society to define marriage for us. We need to say, what was, what was marriage designed for? Um, and, uh, you know, when, if, if you look at um, uh, Wayne Mack has uh, seven Ps of God's design for marriage. I want to run through these quickly, but I want to get to another s- section We'll we'll talk about um, uh, probably more a key question when it comes to actually how to find a spouse. But um, we have the purpose of marriage, the priority of marriage, the particularity of marriage, the purity of marriage, the perspiration of marriage, and the permanence of marriage, and the preeminence of God in marriage. And these are important. It's really important for people to find, to, to see what is really the foundation of marriage. Why does God design marriage? What What do we have? What should marriage look like? And uh, one of the questions I ask couples when they first come for premarital is I say to them, well, first of all, share, tell me your testimony. How did you come to faith in Christ and so forth? Get to know them a little bit. And then I say, so why do you guys want to get married to each other? Which seems like the most uh, you know, obvious question. But you'd be surprised at how 
couples struggle to even answer that. And most couples will come up with something like, well, we just want to be together. I say, okay, so let's go. Let's talk about the purposes of marriage because uh, I can think of five of them. There's companionship, and that's what you're talking about. You want to be together. You want companionship, and God has designed that for man not to be alone. Although in Genesis, it's mankind not being alone. It's not that. Uh, it's not that we say, you know, you know. Sometimes you go to a wedding uh, service, and then a preacher gets up there, and he's like, you know, and God created, you know, the the heavens and earth. And it was good, and all all the, all the creatures, and they were good. And, and he created man. And he says it's not good, not good for man to be alone. You know, especially you, brother. We know that, you know, and. And uh, it wasn't until he created Eve, and now he says it's very good. You like that, women? You know, and and we we get into this, and um, but sometimes I think we can we can realize that uh, uh, it was mankind that was not good without women. It was incomplete, um, and yet those who are in Christ are complete in Christ, and so our, our sufficiency is in Christ. It's not in marriage, and yet marriage is a good thing. But companionship is part of that. But children are also part of that. A couple comes to you for, and they want to get married, and you say, well, what about children? They say, well, we're not ready for children. You're not ready to get married because uh, having children is one of the purposes for marriage. And, and, and even though uh, we have birth control today, there's no 100% foolproof birth control. And so you, there are honeymoon babies born every year, uh, nine months after the wedding. And so you need to be ready for that. How is this going to affect your, your jobs, your schooling? Uh, what, what, you know, what are you thinking about as far as 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 this uh, as, as raising a family, are you ready for this um, instruction and evangelism? Uh, we're going to spend some time in Ephesians five this morning, and so you can open your Bibles there if you want, um, uh, and I would encourage you to. But but really, what it comes down to this is that if you're married for twenty years and somebody comes up to you and says, "Wow, you and your wife really seem to have a really good marriage," how is it that your marriage works so well? You need to be able to say it's because we didn't make up the rules for our marriage. We actually follow a template that's given to us from the Word of God, and the template works like this. My wife tries to follow me just as the church tries to follow Christ. And I try to love her sacrificially just as Christ loves the church. And everything we do is filtered through that pattern. And that's why our marriage works, because we follow God's design for marriage and the purpose for marriage. And, and um, uh, it's the formation of a new family unit where, where now all of a sudden, uh, you know, they become husband and wife and, and, and they become one flesh and no longer uh, under the authority or um, in, in the home of their parents. Um, and to teach servant attitudes. Um, sanctification is a part of marriage. You guys are two sinners. And before, when you're dating, you can get away from each other and you can have space with, from each other. But when you're married, you're two sinners and you're around each other all the time. And you shouldn't be getting away from each other. And so there should be some natural uh, sanctification that takes place where you're becoming more and more like Christ and learning servant attitudes. Um, there's the priority of marriage. When we talk about the priority of marriage, just notice that in Scripture, a lot of times when we talk about uh, the way we should live, one of the first examples given is within the marriage relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, and if you turn there, uh, Ephesians 5 is interesting because it's, it's not really about marriage. It's about Christ and the church, but it's not even really about Christ and the church. It's an illustration of uh, walking wisely. And you remember in Ephesians, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is six chapters. You divide it in half. You've got the first three chapters are all the blessings that you have in Christ, and the second three chapters are all the uh, really uh, the way you should be living now live in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And we have example after example of walking wisely, walking in love. Uh, and you look at that second section. A lot of times we take people to Ephesians 4 through 6 and we say, you see, this is how you should live. But really it's chapters 1 through 3 that motivate you to do that because of all the blessings that you have in Christ. So we need to think about that as a whole. And as we come to Ephesians 5, the command, the imperative is actually in verse 18 where we say Ephesians 5.18 says, um, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit. So what is being filled with the Spirit? What is it to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it's, we're not talking about um, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about um, uh, 
uh, we're talking about this idea of, um, and this passage is a great one to help us understand it because it con- there's a contrast here. Be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation. Somebody who's drunk with wine can't do what they want to do. They're held up at a police, st- you know, you've seen the cop shows and all this where, you know, close your eyes and, and touch your, your nose. You know he's not going for the nose, right? He's, at best, he's going to get the forehead or, or close your eyes and stick out your arms and walk in a straight line. He's going to be all over the place, right? He is, he is influenced by something else that is keeping him from doing what he would want to do. Somebody who is filled with the Spirit doesn't do what they naturally would want to do, in your human sinful nature. They do what the Spirit of God would have them do, okay? And so uh, being filled with the Spirit is doing what God's Spirit would have you to do. And so when we think about being filled with the Spirit, uh, there are, it's, 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 it's a, this is the command, it's an imperative, there's a verb here, and there are five participles that hang off of it that describe what that looks like. Take a look at the, the participles there in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 19. It says in Ephesians 5, 19, speaking to one another. Remember participles, those I-N-G words? They're, they're exciting. They're verbal adjectives. They describe and they have action. That's right. Uh, two for one. So um, when we look at speaking, I-N-G words, speaking to one another. So, so when you're filled with the Spirit, it affects the way you speak to one another. Okay? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. There's two more, singing and making melody. So when you are filled with the Spirit, there is a reason to have joy. And there's a reason to rejoice because Christ is in you, because you are doing what Christ would have you to do, and you are recognizing that you're looking at things through God's perspective. And there's reason for joy in everything according to God's perspective. The fact that we are here and alive and breathing today is a reason for joy, which leads us to the next participle here. Uh, Verse 20, always giving thanks, that gratitude that gratitude, we always have something to be grateful for. And those who are, 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 are truly filled with the Spirit will be grateful no matter what their circumstances uh, are, 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 what they're going through in their certain life circumstances. And, and then we have a fifth participle in verse 21, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That submission, that, that, sub, that mutual submission. You say, what does mutual submission look like? You know, does that, a lot of people say, well, that's where, that's where, you know, you submit to me now and I'll submit to you later. And, I, you know, we trade off submitting. That's not what mutual submission is. It can't be because in verse 22, it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, which is be subject. There's not actually in that verse. It's inferred from the last one. The last one says, be subject to one another, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also is Uh, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And so we have this idea that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And those are parallel statements. And so if you say that mutual submission means that the wife could be the head of the husband sometimes, then you also have to say that the church can be the head of Christ. And may we never say that. So there's something about authority. There's something about headship here that really is uh, imperative for this submissive relationship. And the very first application of being spirit-filled is the marriage relationship. That's why Paul starts talking about this in Ephesians 5. He's giving a specific relationship because there is something about the priority of marriage. In Colossians 3, he does the same thing when he's talking about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The first specific illustration he gives of that is marriage. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 2, when we talk about the qualifications for a spiritual leader and being above reproach, what is the first area mentioned of being above reproach in? the husband of one wife, marriage. In Titus chapter 2, when older women are instructed to instruct younger women, what is the very first area, the priority area of their life that they're instructed to instruct younger women on? It is on the marriage relationship that they love their husbands. And so when we talk about not only the priority marriage, but the particularity of marriage, um, when we think about the fact that Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, There is something unique about this relationship. It is different. It is a different relationship than any other relationship. And sometimes 
People in our churches aren't aware of that. They're used to having friendships with people of the opposite sex. And so, so and, 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 they, and this idea that, oh, I'm not going to really, that relationship's going to fall away when I get married. Because either that person is going to become friends with my husband and I, or that, rela- that friendship with him is going to fall away. And people need to understand that there is a, a particular uniqueness about the relationship with a husband and wife. Um, uh, there's the purity of marriage, which incidentally, a sexually pure relationship begins before marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornication takes pr- place prior to marriage. And so this, there's implications there for a sexually promiscuous life prior to marriage. And you think about a father and the father's responsibility with a daughter is to really care for her, protect her, provide for her, and keep her pure. And those get transferred over to husband. But when we think about the, the, the marriage relationship, this is why it's so important. It's so important, men, that, that we need to guard our own hearts and that when we hear about the moral failures of others, may it only be an excuse to look at our own sin and our own need for God's grace and our own need for purity and holiness and pursuing righteousness. Jesus said it this way in Matthew five twenty-seven through 29, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery within her heart. If your right eye makes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose part of the body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus speaks by hyperbole there, but his point is deal with sin severely. We know that it's hyperbole. We know he's not literally saying pluck out your eye. How do we know that? Because your eye doesn't cause you to sin. He says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He also speaks about if your hand causes you to sin. Somebody doesn't go to the grocery store and looking at this aisle and their hand is taking stuff from the other aisle and they're putting it in their coat pocket and then, and then all of a sudden they go outside and they say, I think we have something in your pockets. No, I don't. And then they, they check their pockets and there's something there and they say, oh, it was my hand, <laughs> you know? It's ludicrous. Your hand just doesn't cause you to do that. You're not sitting at a park bench reading the newspaper, your eyes out looking at some girl walking by. If that were the case, get rid of it. But that's not the case. This is a heart issue. And we need to be above reproach. And we need to deal with sin severely. And you can't even allow yourself to fantasize on what you could, what you'd like to get away with if you thought you could. And so we need to teach about purity in marriage. And we need to have accountability. I tell young guys, I say, go with three levels of accountability. Go with the three Ps of accountability, your peer, your parent, and your pastor. I said, find somebody who's a, who's a, um, who's a, a peer who you're going to tell everything to, and you're going to be brutally open, and you're going to say, this is what I'm struggling with. I need prayer, and I want to mortify my sin, and I want to deal with it because I want to be pure. And, if, and, and if, that's, if you're struggling with that, go to a parent-type figure. It could be your parent. It could be an older person in the church who's more mature. Get them to pray for you. Have them to help you. Get in, get in God's Word. It's really God's Word that's going to transform your life. You can't do this on your own strength. You need God's strength. And, and, you know, we were never meant to be Christians alone. That's why we're part of a body. So find somebody who's more mature than you who can disciple you in that area, a parent-type figure. And then if, if you're still struggling and everybody's, you know, say, hey, we need, we need more help, get a pastor. This is what pastors are here for. So uh, we think about that, that purity and how important that is. Uh, and then we also, uh, I was going to talk about, um, I, I do want to just mention that um, sexual, uh, sexual activity is wrong outside of marriage, but within marriage, in God's eyes, sexual relationships between a husband and wife are perfectly pure, perfectly normal, and they're to be enjoyed fully. And we should, we should teach that to our young people, that this is part of God's design for marriage. And he wants, he wants you to experience uh, all the joys in life that he has ordained for you. But ultimately, when you take it out of his plan and you say, I don't want God's design for marriage, I want to do it my way, 
you're going to end with consequences. Sin always has consequences. And one of the deceptive things about sin is that when it seems like you got away with it once, you believe the lie that somehow it was worth it and sin is never worth it. And so you you need to teach them that that's only creating a bigger snare for them that's going to trap them. It's a trap. They're going to be enslaved to their sin if they do not deal with it severely. These need to be taught. Purity needs to be taught. The perspiration of marriage needs to be taught as well because we can't just talk about having a good marriage. We need to work at having a good marriage. Everything I know about counseling couples is that if they have a young couple that is, that is uh, struggling and they're not married, counsel them to spend some time away from each other. There's something to be said about ab- absence makes the heart grow fonder or wander. And so uh, that's okay. But when you think about within a marriage, they have already become one. So as much as you possibly can, if they're struggling within their marriage, more time together, working through it, the hard work. Uh, We can talk about how important marriage is, but our attention and our efforts need to be in building the marriage will be profitable if we work at them. In Proverbs 14, 23, it says, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. You can't just talk about it. Um, Being submissive to your own husbands in 1 Peter 3, Verses 1 and 2 is, is, is difficult. Uh, it's, it's difficult to win them without a word. Um, or, or, to, or to 1 Peter 3, 7, uh, live with your wives in an understanding way. Notice it doesn't say understand her, but live with her in an understanding way. Uh, it, it, is, it takes work to do that. It, take, works, it takes work. Um, and then there's the permanence of marriage. That should be Malachi 2, uh, 13 through 16. But the, this idea that, that um, uh, marriage is designed for one man, one woman for a lifetime. Um, I could say more about that, but I, I want to move on and, and I'm, I'm going to get back to, uh, to Ephesians 5 in a moment. Um, but we'll close with the, the, yeah, we'll go with the preeminence of marriage and then I'm, uh, pre- preeminence of God in marriage. I want to go back to Ephesians 5, and let's talk about this before we get to really kind of the heart of where we're going with this. With this all this is kind of introduction. It's all kind of foundation to where we're going with, with being ready for marriage. Um, so let's go back to Ephesians 5. We've seen the five participles here, and we've seen this, this first illustration really of, of what, it, what mutual submission looks like. And it's an example of wives being subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 22, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Um, uh, And then husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. It's verses 26 and 27 I kind of want to focus in on because I think we skip over those sometimes. Verse 26 says, so that, this is our, this is our so that statement, our henna clause, right? This is, this is telling us the purpose why is it? And this answers the question. If you go back to verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for Why did Christ give himself up for the church? So that he might, for the purpose of, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What is this talking about? The first century Jewish wedding, the traditional wedding, would happen in three stages. First of all, the parents, the fathers would meet and they would arrange and they would discuss the terms and they would agree upon a wedding. And if they agreed upon it, that's what was going to happen. And then uh, the next stage would be the betrothal stage, which would be done with a rabbi before the, the family's present. And uh, there would be vows that would be said. And according to the actual vows, the, the groom would actually say, you are a wife unto me. There would be formal legal vows to the extent that if they broke off the betrothal, um, uh, she, they would have to get a legal divorce. If he died, she was considered a widow, even though they hadn't consummated the marriage yet, even though the celebration hadn't taken place yet. The third stage of the first century wedding was the celebration. And that could happen six months to a year after the betrothal. And at that time, the celebration, uh, the, 
the, the, the bride would get up in the morning and with her bridesmaids, she would go, we have bridal showers, they had bridal baths. And they would go to the bathhouse in the, in the town that they were in or if they had a bath in the, in the home, maybe in the basement, a lower level uh, place where they could bathe, even for ceremonial, they would ceremonial, ceremonially bathe her and then put perfume on her and dress her in, in fine ornaments in a, a pure dress, symbolic of her being cleansed and ready for the, the bride, for the bridegroom. And, and remember, and, 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 then, and then she would wait which she'll do the rest of her life. But she, she's waiting for him for that day to come and procure her from her house. And the groomsmen would come. This is what's happening in Matthew 25 when the, the ten virgins are waiting with their lamps, right? And, and uh, they're waiting for the, the, the bridegroom to come and procure her from her father's house and parade her through town and bring her to his father's house where the celebration would take place and present her in all her splendor and all her glory before his father, to say, this is the woman you have chosen for me. That was the picture of the first century wedding, and that celebration could go on for days. So now let's read this again, and notice it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. How do you sanctify your wife? How do you make your wife holy with the word of God? You have to love the word of God, speak the word of God, teach the word of God, be about the word of God, be the one who's leading your family in the word of God, taking them to church to be a part of the word of God. It's the word of God that's going to cleanse. It can't be faked. They're with you all the time. They'll see it. The word of God. And, and this, is, this is one thing that I tell young guys. If you want to be holy, try to make someone else holy. This is the calling of a husband to sanctify your wife, to set her apart. You know, sanctification means set apart. It's, uh, I have these clothes. These, my, these are my sanctified clothes because if I go home and I go to the garage, my wife says, hey, take off those clothes. Those are, those are your Sunday clothes. They're set apart for special service. Those who are in Christ are set apart. They're sanctified for special service. There's one sanctified player on every football team. He's different from all the rest. He doesn't have a full you know, gridiron mask. He's got one little bar, and he's got the cleanest uniform out there, and he's the leading point scorer on many teams. And he goes out there. He used to be a soccer player, but now he's playing American football. And people don't understand it. And he's, he's got this kick and all this. And if, you, if, you're, if your nose tackle goes down for a broken knee and, and, and the coach says, okay, kicker, you're in. You're going to be nose tackle. People are like, wait, not him. He should not be involved in the filth of the game. He is set apart for a specific person, purpose. And those of you who are sanctified are set apart for a specific purpose in this world. It is not having to do with the filth of this world, but it has to do with what your Lord, what honors him. And so you're bringing your children and your wife, you're sanctifying them, you're washing them with the water of the word. You see, marriage is a picture of a greater relationship, a better relationship. And this is why Paul gets all wrapped up in himself. And, and he says, verse 32, for this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. I'm not even talking about marriage anymore. But what he's really talking about being filled with the Spirit. And you cannot have a God-glorifying marriage unless you are a believer and repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as Lord and you are trying to do what the Spirit of Christ would have you to do. So unless you're endeavoring to be filled with the Spirit, you cannot have a God-glorifying relationship. It's all tied together here. The structure of the passage is explicitly clear. God is to be preeminent in this marriage. This marriage should bring about sanctification and glorification and it should bring glory to God. Okay, that's our introduction. But now the real question. This is why all the single guys are on the front row today. This is, this is, this is, this is the real question. How should Christian singles find their love? This is what you came for, Right? There is no explicit section of Scripture that gives you a step, a step one, step two. It's not like church discipline. Step one, meet with her alone. <laughs> step two, if she's not responsive to you, meet with one other privately that you might win her over. Um, 
It just doesn't work like that. It would be great if we could go to First Hesitations and find it there, but we can't. (laughs) So, ah, I think first of all, we need to try to define love because this is where the world influences our idea of love because everything in the world tells you it's a feeling and it's this this, uh, head in the clouds and feet off the ground and kind of your heart is all over the place and you just can't speak and you're... uh, Right? I found this definition. I like this definition. I've used it for years. It's by a pastor who's written a number of little booklets, some of which I'm a big fan of and some of which I'm not. Uh, But... uh, the, the quote is this. It should come up in a second. Love is a responsibility that, when rightly practiced, reignites feelings of joyous affection and strong passion. I'm happy with that definition. I like that definition. Love is a responsibility that, when rightly practiced, reignites feelings of joyous affection and strong passion. I like it because it has those joyous feelings in there, those affectionate feelings, and yet those feelings come and go. And love is a, a, in, in the laboratory of of duty and responsibility is where love is really practiced. And so, you know, you take 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you've got 15 different examples of what love is and what love is not. Love is patient. You want to start loving someone? The premise behind this definition is that you choose your love and you love your choice. You're going to make a decision on the one whom you're going to bestow your love upon, and then you start loving them. You get a couple comes into the counseling office, been married for a number of years. She sits over there with her arms crossed. He sits over there with his arm crossed. And they come for you for counsel and you say, how's it going? (laughs) And he says something like, well, you see, pastor, the problem is I just don't love her anymore. So we're finished. And he thinks he's got you. Because how are you going to make him change his heart? And you look at him and say, well, let me ask you this. On your wedding day, did you vow before God to love her, to cherish her in sickness and health, in, in, in richness and poor, and so death do you part? Did you say something like that? Yes. Well, then stop sinning and start fulfilling the vow that you made and start loving her and walk them through what love looks like. Love is a responsibility that when rightly practiced, reignites feelings of joyous affection and strong passion. Let's talk about some characteristics to help you choose your love. I call these the five M's, the master, the mission, the means, the maturity, and mutual affection. So let's walk through this. This is, this is the rest of our time, and then we'll have some questions. We're going to walk through these. We're, we're going to take our time walking through them, though. Does he have the same master? Does she have the same master that I do? It's not uncommon for uh, a couple to come for premarital counseling and for the, uh, <laughs> them to prep each other before they come. This is what we're going to tell him if he asks this question. <laughs> this is what you should say here. And we're not going to talk about this at all. Why? Because they've been following not God's design for marriage, but their own design for marriage. And they want to try and conceal that. And somehow, this is, this is where it gets crazy, is, is when this comes out, I say, so let me get this straight. All your friends know who you really are. You know who you really are. But you want me to stand before all your friends and all your family and pretend that I don't know who you really are and ask God to bless you even though you're concealing all this from everybody. That's what you're asking me to do? You might want to try a, you know, a different church down the road because you realize what you're asking me to do? Who is your master? Every couple that comes to me, I, 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 I meet with them, we talk, we... Um, uh, I hear their testimonies. I give them homework based off of kind of where I think they're at, what they should do. I never commit to do a wedding until we're done with at least six sessions of premarital counseling. That's just me. Uh, I, early on in ministry, I asked a pastor friend of mine, uh, would you marry unbelievers? 
would you marry two unbelievers? I know I can't marry a believer to an unbeliever, but would you marry two unbelievers? He said to me, I've never had to. I said, why is that? He said, because I don't commit to the wedding until we're done with premarital counseling. Anybody can come to me for premarital counseling, but really they have to be able to take the counsel. They have to be receptive to the counsel. And I can work through issues. And, and I've had people get saved in the counseling room, premarital counseling. They get saved. We had two people just last year get baptized here at Grace Church because they came and they realized, hey, who are we trying to kid? We're only fooling ourselves. Every couple that comes to me as part of their first week's homework assignment, I give them a sheet of paper that says this, am I dating a fool? And I, and I, and I, t- I tell them, I tell them, hey, hey, listen, I give this to everybody, not just you guys, okay? Just so you know. But you need to know that, uh, you know, you can fool me. I'm really easy to fool. I believe people. I'm a believer in you. I believe what you tell me. I have no other reason not to. So I choose to believe. I'm a believer, okay? In every sense of the word, I want to be a believer, all right? But you can't fool God. And you're not fooling each other. And so, you know... Proverbs 10, 18, a fool spreads slander. If this guy's slandering other people, you're marrying a fool. Proverbs 12, 15, the fool always thinks he or she is right. Is this really the person you want to marry? Proverbs 15, 20, the fool will often have a bad relationship with his parents or her parents. Proverbs 18, 6, a fool is one who words often bring strife between people. Proverbs 20, 13, a fool, a fool often quarrels. Who would want an, a, a pugnacious person as a companion? Proverbs 26, 20, the fool is untrustworthy. A real fool can't even be entrusted to, 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 uh, to uh, deliver a message. I'll, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. I don't know if I should tell this, but so I'll tell it. So a young guy comes to me, wants to date my daughter, right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to cut the tape at this point right here. Um, so, uh, so I said, let's go, let's go, let's have coffee. So I have this car that my grandfather bought brand new. It's a 1967 Impala convertible. I got it when it was 20 years old. I got it in 87 when I was a senior in high school and I still have this car. It's just this, this is a big boat. It's just a big boat. I cruise around the Harbor. It's, it's just a big old boat, Right. <laughs> So I take him out and I tell him all about this car, how my I was a little kid, the smell of it, my grandfather, everything like that, right? We have coffee. He's a good kid. I say, yeah, you can take my daughter out, you know. And then, and then uh, afterwards I said, you want to drive the Chevy back home? He goes, you trust me with your car? I said, I trust you with my daughter. <laughs> the car's nothing. It's nothing. But take care of it. Uh, drive safely. Yeah, so, but... Uh, <laughs> You want a trustworthy guy. You want a guy who can be trusted. Uh, the fool uh, is angry a lot, always loses his temper, 29.11. Ecclesiastes 4.5, the fool folds his hands, a lot of time folding hands, laziness. This guy can't hold a job. Is this somebody you really want to marry? So... Um, uh, if, 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 if you're being deceptive with me, you better rethink about what you're getting yourself into here. So am I dating a fool? Do you have the same master, in other words? Because if he's your master and you've submitted your life to him, then green lights, let's go. What are you waiting for? Well, does he have the same mission? Most of the time when we find the word in Scripture, calling, it's used to refer to the effectual calling or called salvation. But when we, when we think about... Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 would be one place where it talks about live as you are called. And it's not just speaking about salvation, but it's talking about life circumstances, whether or not that might be you're you're, you're a Jew or a Gentile or whether you're a slave or free. And so uh, there's this idea three times this principle is is reiterated in 1 Corinthians 7, and that is that God saves people in different circumstances for his purposes. Therefore, unless he directs you out of those circumstances, you should serve him in them. 
And so um, one of them places would be 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17 where it says, only as in the Lord, uh, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. So I direct in all the churches. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 7 says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And we could talk a lot more about calling and the call to ministry, but you know the reality is that uh, a, 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 when young people are looking at someone, they need to say, well, what has God called them to do? And that should be a part of the thought process. And can that be something I go along with? When I was in seminary, I was in a discipleship lab here with Professor Montoya, with Alex Montoya, who's here this week. Uh, so uh, uh, I was dating a girl from high school, a girl who um, told me one time that said, I wanted to be a missionary in Africa, and I ended up serving 19 years in Africa. I came back seven years ago. Um, but uh, she told me while I was in seminary, I don't think I can ever picture myself ever living outside of the borders of the United States. So I shared that with my discipleship group, give them something to pray for, you know, hey, you know, I'm trying to be vulnerable here. And, uh, you know, my girlfriend just, I want to be a missionary in Africa. My girlfriend told me she never wants to live outside of America. So just pray with God, change your heart, <laughs> you know, right? Montoya looks at me, says one word. Run. <laughs> Run. Wow. I was still dating her at graduation. I introduced him, her to him. And he grabs her hand. And he looks at me. He raises his eyebrow as if to say, I've got her. Just run. Get away from this girl. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, hey, you want to be a missionary? Girl never wants to live overseas. She's not the one for you. Um, uh, I met my wife overseas. She's born in South Africa. She's South African, and and we were dating. And I was the pastor. I was her pastor. I was also her boyfriend's pastor. So I had some shepherding to do, like like you know. So, um, uh, but um, um, that's for a different seminar. Uh, but uh, so so, anyways. Once things were like headed on the right track, and we're talking marriage, and this other guy who's very happy now, he's out of the picture. And so um, um, uh, she says to me, she says, you know, being a pastor and being a pastor's wife, that's, that's going to be a, a challenge. And she said, I think it's because people are always going to be vying for your time, and you're going to be up in the middle of the night going to people for this and that, and it's going to be difficult. And it'd be different if you were going to be a plumber or something like that, you know? In God's providence, after we got married, our first home was right next door to a plumber. I can't tell you how many times we heard him open his gate in the middle of the night to go and help save people in a totally different area. I said, you could be married to him. But um, uh, I'm here for you, baby. I'm right here. I just want to point this out. The point is this. A woman and the guy that she's thinking about marrying, they need to actually desire the same things in life that they can serve together and complement one another. And, uh, and, and that's important. So I think having the same mission is important. The means, uh, um, having the sufficient means. Now, this can, be, this can vary. You know, I, I, listen, I've married people where um, she's from England and he's from one of the top 10 poorest countries of the world in Central Africa. And, uh, and so we start talking about, uh, can he provide for her? And what's it going to look like if you're raising your family in Central Africa without health insurance? Are you willing to live under the means in which God has provided for you. And so this is something couples should think about beforehand. And you never know. I mean, God provides in amazing ways, and, but, but this really is for richer, for poorer. And he has a responsibility to provide for his family, but what's your definition? What's your expectation? Let's, get, let's talk about this. I remember I had a, a couple come to me. Actually, she just came to me actually with her daughter, and she said, Pastor, um, I'm wondering if you could admonish my husband to provide for us because he's not providing for us. And he has a biblical responsibility to provide for us, and I wonder if you could do that. I happen to know this guy. I happen to know that he was working two jobs at, the, at this time. I said, well, what do you mean he's not providing for you? And she said, well, uh, let me just tell you this. Uh, there are times, 
occasionally where the, the power just goes off because we haven't paid the bill. And so I can't cook dinner. We have an electric stove. I've got young kids at home. And it is just, it just, it just, he's just not providing for me. So again, I went back to the wedding vows. And I said, when you talked about your wedding vows, was there anything in there about electricity? Was there about the Department of Lights and Power? Anything about that? Well, of course not. Well, I said, you know, we live in, at that time we were living in South Africa. I said, in South Africa, over half the population doesn't have electricity. So what makes you think you have the right to have electricity in your home? You married this man. He is your husband. Uh, and, and so I said, I said uh, when you think about the fact that, um, you know, what he needs right now, he's working two jobs. When the electricity goes out and he can't pay the bill, he needs a wife who's going to light candles, make it fun, make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and, and say to the kids, oh, yay, another night where we get to eat with our hands. <laughs> this is what he needs right now. He needs a helpmate that's willing to live with the means that he can provide. And so we need to talk about those means and what that looks like and, and be reasonable. But by the same token, young men, if you've got no plan to provide for her and your plan to provide for her is for her to work, Titus 2 says she is to be a worker at home, which means her first priority should be at home. And there are some women who can do amazing things even outside of the home and keep their first priority at home. But not all women are built the same. And so you need to say, what are my plans to provide for her? Do I have the means to take care of her? Does it master, mission, means, biblical maturity? This is a tough one. This is where things often go upside down because or sideways. Because what happens is, this is a, a very common situation. You have this couple, and they, they uh, man, the first date, he's saying, I just want you to know I don't date just a date. I'm, I'm intentional, and uh, I hope this goes somewhere. All this code language for, I like you, baby, and I want to get married, right? <laughs> and so, so he's saying all this stuff, right? And she's like, wow, 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 and all these emotions and all these sparks, and it's wow. And then she tells her friends what you said, and they said, he said what? And now she's having second thoughts, and so then, then, there's, then she gets cold feet, okay? And then what often happens is, she wants some distance. And then what happens to a lot of guys is they turn into a puppy dog. And they're no longer leading the relationship. They're waiting for her to come home. Do you want to play? Yeah, okay, yeah. So, and they're just like a little puppy, like on a leash, getting jerked around. It's like, hey, come over here. Let's go do this. I want to go to show you to my friends. And, oh, I don't want to be with you now. And that's, that's a terrible way to pe- treat puppies. But... Uh, <laughs> um, But men, guys who come to me in that situation, when they start describing me the puppy dog scenario, I basically say to them, this is where you earn your chest hair. There's, you are, you're not leading this relationship. You're following, and you need to somehow lead it. And they say, well, how do I do that? There's only one way I know of. You need to break up with her. I, I had the puppy dog syndrome myself, and I had to give my wife a breakup speech, and she remembers it. I had three points. Uh, <laughs> It's over, it's finished, we're history. Those were the three points. And uh, I, I, I really had to be clear because I was so wimpy that I, I, I thought she's not even going to, I'm going to be too nice even in breaking up. So I had to be clear, so I had three points. So, but uh, um, at the end of the day, um, uh, if the Lord brings you back together, then it's going to be on the right terms and you're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to have to lead you. I'm going to have to be the one who's going to man up and actually be the leader in this relationship. Do you have the biblical maturity? There is a shortage of godly people in this world. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Just pursue Christ. Pursue holiness. He will take care of everything else you need. Um, and then mutual affection. Mutual affection. This is this. I put this one last, um, and this is the first thing that people are concerned about. Uh, but I think if you understand the fact that love is responsibility, that when rightly practiced, reignites feelings of mutual affection. Um, you know, when when we think about the fact that Song of Solomon describes what romantic love should look like, 
And the book opens with these words. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. And the book closes with these words. May water, many waters cannot quench love nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. You know, the passion and those feelings of romance and love, uh, people say, are they important? Yes and no. On the one hand, in biblical times, you can have an arranged marriage and grow to love each other and have that passion and practice that responsibility of love and have never even laid eyes on her or her sister before you got married. (laughs) Right? My goodness. So, but when you think about the fact that, so so in one sense, I can't say it's a biblical requirement that you have those feelings. But on the other hand, this is not just a business agreement, right? You're going to be one. I have a good friend who, uh, who, man, he, he had a great, he, he knew that this girl would make a great wife. And uh, he just didn't have feelings for her. And he tells his wedding story, and he'll, he'll, t- he'll tell that at the dinner table. And people are like, you know, she's sitting right there, you know. And she didn't really have feelings for him. Uh, but he started to pray that the Lord would give her feelings, give him feelings for her. And uh, he tells a story about one day where he goes to pick her up. or actually She dropped her sister off or something for her sister at their house. And she says she was wearing sweats, unwashed hair, greasy, just dropping something off. He said her hair flowed like slow motion. <laughs> um, so in, in, in answer to the question about mutual affection, I do believe it's important. I think it should be there. But it comes and goes. Those feelings come and go. And you practice the right love. And that is, that is when they are reignited. So last slide, and that is... Um, know this as well. Even if, you know, this verse is such a comfort for me in so many situations because really it does come down to trusting a sovereign God whose work is perfect and all his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. This is why we're here. We're here to glorify him. If we can glorify him more as married, let's do it. if it's to glorify him now while you're waiting to get married. You know, I, the, you talk about 1 Corinthians 7 and the gift of singleness. Uh, I was reading Luther on this, and I don't know where he gets this from, but I really like it. He says, uh, the gift of singleness is real, but it's not as common as most people think. He says, for every one person who has the gift of singleness, there's 100,000 other of us who do not. And uh, I, I do think that, that uh, there's, there's something to that and that... Uh, we need to continue to trust God and work to finding these the five M's. Some resources for you. Uh, Joel James has a free download document called The Companionship Principle. My wife has read through it with my kids when they were younger. So really exciting about that. Uh, I think it's a great resource. Um, a book that's being promoted um, is uh, today uh, is... Um, this book by MacArthur and, and Busnitz, Right Thinking for a Culture in Chaos... There's a chapter here on marriage and singleness that I wrote, and that was the basis for this lecture today. So if you want to read more about that, it's a chapter in this book. Uh, Wayne Mack, Preparing for Marriage God's Way. It's a robust thing. You might want to take what you can for it, but for it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really packed with a lot of good stuff. And then this little booklet, again, I'll mention this, The Art of Choosing Your Love. I really like the premise and the definition of love. Again, there's other things he's written, which I'm not 100% fond of, but a lot of what he says in here I think is so succinct and so good. I hand this out a lot. I encourage, encourage you. Okay, five minutes for questions. Yes? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think the question is what authority and, and how aggressive should pastors be to push your... Your, your people to date. Well, I don't think you need to push them. They want to date. The problem is, is that none of the guys are ready to ask, 
You know, they're trying to figure out their own lives and all that. No, that's not the only problem. But that, but, but, but oftentimes, uh, I mean, I, I, I told a, a girl in our group said saw that I was was uh, actually going to be teaching on this, and she said I'm, I'm excited because I'm going to teach on it on Sunday in our fellowship group. I'll do the same presentation. And I said, do you want me to put your picture up there with your phone number and say, how did that get in there, you know? And she said, please do, you know? And so, uh, you know, I haven't had the same offer from the guys. But uh, I, I do think that you encourage them. You teach them about what marriage should be. You, 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 you encourage them to be patient. You encourage them to pursue Christlikeness. Um, should be something that you're not... You know, you don't have to force them to do it. You don't have to be aggressive because they want to do it. They want to get married. Yes. Yeah. So, really, First Corinthians seven. Um, you need to familiarize yourself with the MacArthur Commentary on First Corinthians seven and be able to explain that. There, that's a that is a chapter I go to again and again and again. And there are different groups of people there. You know, you talk about early on verses seven and eight. You've got. Uh, those who are um, unmarried and divorced, or sorry, unmarried and widows. I think the unmarried there are divorced persons. I think that with biblical grounds, two biblical grounds being uh, that of uh, adultery and abandonment, I think that those would be biblical grounds that free you so you're no longer bound. Um, and, and so I think that that would be free for, for remarriage. I do think that, and I'll tell you this, if there's a divorce in your church, and you're not involved in it as a church, you're not serving your people well. Because the remarriage question is going to come up later, and if the church was silent about the divorce, now you've got a bunch of knots that you've got to untie, and nobody ever, never, nobody ever was looking at them when they were first being tied. And so it, you're just making more work for yourself or somebody else. But when the church gets involved and says, hey, you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, and this is not something that we, that we believe that you that would be uh, uh, God-honoring. Or if they say, you know, you do have biblical grounds for divorce, and, 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 and then when the question, and you, you record that, you shepherd them through that, and you discipline those who need to be disciplined. And then when it comes down to it, if someday, 20 years later, I've had couples come to me after 20 years of being divorced saying they want to get remarried to someone, you know, and, and, and now well, what, what went on 20 years ago? I've had spouses from 20 years ago come in and say, well, that's not what happened. And it's a mess. It's a mess. So I think, I think the church needs to serve in that area. And First Corinthians seven, you've got those different categories. You've got the unmarried and 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 uh, which are divorced, I think. And, and you got virgins in verse twenty-five. You got married in verses ten through uh, eighteen. So, yes. Yeah, so I think um, when there comes... Sorry, let me just mention one other resource on divorce and remarriage, and that's Jay Adams' little booklet, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. I think that's very helpful. But when it comes to your question of are there circumstances where you actually um, would advise people not to date for a season, it would be because one of those five M's is not looking right. That's Those five M's... Uh, if I me go back a couple. So does he have the same master, compatible mission, means, maturity, and affection, uh, mutual affection? If one of those is not going on, that's when I tell him, hey, hold off on this. Until this gets sorted out, you really shouldn't move forward. Um, there's a whole new thing that's actually interesting, and, and I don't have time to talk about it, but uh, a, a real good question that pastors need to work through also is, we have a whole group of people in the church that didn't exist in the first century because in the first century, a young woman really didn't have the ability to be independent of her parents or a husband. And now we have women who are in their 30s and living on their own. And, and do they obey? Do they honor? And how do they honor and still disobey? And are these questions, what authority does a father have today? And I think, again, First Corinthians 7 is going to help answer that question as well. Yes. Well, obviously, there's no magic phrase. Yeah, right. So, so. Uh, I got a group of you that you just say that, and you must be a little 
Yeah. Well, you'll know them by their fruit, right? And so this guy needs to be uh, mature enough that he's been tested and, 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 and that he's, he's actually involved with other people in the body and they've seen fruit in his life. And you're looking for that, that, that affirmation from other people as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and salvation is, is, I mean, there are so many people who think they're saved and they're not saved. And I, I serve people by, for the first counseling meeting, I sit down, we start talking, well, this is what the Bible says a Christian is. Is this what you are? And I've had people walk out and say, I don't think I'm saved. And I've had people walk out and say, I don't think I'm saved. I don't think I want to be saved. And I think, well, I feel like I served you because you walked in here thinking you were saved and at least now you know you're not. And I'm praying for you because you have no hope. No hope without Christ. Last question. Yes. How do you counsel them on the gray areas of preference when it comes to dating? What, like Chinese food or what? what? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. You know, the, the, here's the question. Can you follow this guy? And is she following you? Or is she digging in her heels just because you missed the freeway exit? Come on. Right? What's this relationship really look like under the hood? Does it have these, the five M's? Master, mission, means, maturity, and affection. So, hey, if they're dating and, and those superficial things are causing stumbling blocks, spend time apart from each other. Take a break. It's, a, it's not a bad idea. It's really a good, healthy thing. Hey, let me pray quickly. Thank you, Father, for these men's. Thank you for this time talking about this, this subject, which uh, is so challenging in our churches. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to shepherd uh, others with love the same way we would want to be shepherd, shepherded. And, and, and we just thank you for... Uh, your word, which is so clear and has so many principles that apply to our daily lives. We thank you for, for that and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.